Welcome to Cancer Conference Update and Highlights of the Breast Cancer Papers and Presentations from the recent 2006 ASCO meeting. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I asked clinical investigators Dr. Rowan Shablowski, Dr. Antonio Wolf, and Dr. Joanne Blum to help me select and review some of the most important data sets at this annual meeting. And Dr. Shablowski began by reviewing the first clinical trial report of an overall survival advantage using aromatase inhibitors compared to tamoxifen. The Arno study, which was updated with survival analysis, was reported by Dr. Kaufman for the German Breast Cancer Research Group. This is an adjuvant study in postmenopausal receptor-positive patients, both node-positive and node-negative, who received two years of tamoxifen and then were randomized to three years of anastrozole or three years of tamoxifen. This is an updated analysis, and basically the major finding was that in addition to being a disease-free survival benefit, which had been previously reported, there was a substantial and statistically significant survival benefit with a hazard ratio of about 50%, so nearly 50% reduction in risk of death for the women who got anastrozole versus tamoxifen. This is, in a certain sense, the first aromatase inhibitor trial to report a survival difference. The trial was of modest size of 979 women, and the number of deaths was modest as well, but I think it represents an important signal in terms of the adjuvant aromatase inhibitor use. There was a e-publication of four of the randomized aromatase inhibitor trials put together showing a survival benefit as well. At last year's San Antonio meeting, there was another meta-analysis of three different aromatase inhibitor trials showing a survival benefit at the early breast cancer trialists, we saw an informal presentation of looking at all the aromatase inhibitor trials showing a survival benefit. To me, this is an important signal. Some oncologists are waiting for a survival benefit in one of the big aromatase inhibitor trials, but I just recall our experience with tamoxifen, our experience with CMF. The signal to adopt these as standard therapy wasn't a single trial, but rather the early trialist meta-analysis showing that these therapies worked. I think we're at that point now for aromatase inhibitor use. There have been people who looked at these switching types of trials where the risk reduction, maybe an indirect comparison, we don't know directly yet, seems more impressive than using an AI up front and concluded that maybe that's a better strategy to start with tamoxifen and switch. What do you think about that? I think we've gotten a couple signals indicating that that might not be the case. And one of which is we can go right into, which was the update of the IES study, which was reported this year now. And to go back over the study design, the study design there was early stage postmenopausal women, largely receptor positive, but not completely. After two to three years of tamoxifen randomized to exemestane or tamoxifen, originally reported at 30 months with a disease-free survival benefit, now reported at 54 months. Earlier, it was close to a 40% improvement in disease-free survival. Now, at this 54-month period, the hazard ratio shows a 24% reduction in risk of recurrence, very similar to the letrozole and anastrozole upfront studies. Importantly, the study now, IES study now, reports a borderline improvement in survival, 
where the p-value was 0.08 for about a 15% improvement in survival for the overall group, that's the intent-to-treat analysis, in a subgroup which was ER positive and ER unknown, excluding the ER negative, the p-value was equal to 0.05. Now that to me says it's drifting back towards the kind of reduction in risk that we see with the first-line therapies as a follow-up becomes longer than the short two-and-a-half-year period. I think the second signal was from the ABCSG trial reported at San Antonio this year. That's a true sequencing trial in that, again, it's the usual population of postmenopausal early-stage, largely receptor-positive patients randomized up front to tamoxifen for two years and then a switch to nastrozole versus five years of tamoxifen. And in that study, over 2,900 women were randomized, but by the time you got to two years, the population was reduced by about 400, so you had around 2,500 women entered. It looked like the hazard ratio reduction was close to 40% when you looked at the population beginning in the middle, the 2,500. When you go back to the overall start, it goes down to 24%, again, very similar to the studies which initially use aromatase inhibitor. So this suggests to me that a lot of the apparent difference was due to selection rather than a priming effect in that one gets rid of or removes from the analysis the women who are either going to recur early, who aren't truly receptor positive, who have comorbidities, who are non-pill takers, all those drop out. And so you have a more favorable population to look for a hormone effect when you're starting in the middle. Another important signal I think we've got regarding the aromatase inhibitor trials for the weight for overall survival was from the MA17 study. Now in that study, again, early stage postmenopausal, largely receptor positive patients who received five years of tamoxifen then were randomized to letrozole or placebo, originally reported and unblinded after 30 months. And now, interestingly, the results were presented after 54 months as intent to treat, although 73% of the women in the placebo arm began letrozole. Interestingly, there was still a major, major improvement in disease-free survival for the women who elected to take letrozole, but the hazard ratio for survival was 0.99. And I think that's an important signal that if you're waiting in individual early-stage patients for survival benefit, I think it's going to be a long wait. I've asked you this question before. I'm just kind of curious where you stand now on that, which is if the anti-tumor effect of tamoxifen and the aromatase inhibitors were the same, would you utilize AIs purely based on the safety and toxicity data? Yeah, I would use aromatase inhibitors preferentially, even if the efficacy was the same as tamoxifen, because I look at the three life-threatening toxicities of endometrial cancer, arterial and venous vascular events, and I see that they're reduced. The bone health issue is really one that's under more careful control now, and it looks like it's going to be preventable, treatable condition with perhaps even less monitoring than we did previously. I think the cardiac signal is really a very weak one. And so with that background, I really don't have major concerns based on the available data we have for long-term aromatase inhibitor use. In this regard, I find it interesting as we're wondering what the duration should be in terms of what goes first. Interesting is the design of the ABCSG 16 trial, the Austrian Breast Cancer Study Group 16 trial, where they're accepting women with postmenopausal early stage resected breast cancer who 
have had five years of hormone therapy with the strata of five years of tamoxifen, five years of tamoxifen AI mix, or five years of aromatase inhibitors, randomized to two years of anastrozole versus five years of anastrozole. So in that study, interestingly, seven years of aromatase inhibitor can be the control arm. So that's an interesting kind of signal that at least that group of investigators feels that there's sufficient safety data to go ahead with that kind of population. Another ABCSG trial where they took women who were randomized either to tamoxifen or tamoxifen and metoglutethamide, and then they offered anastrozole or not to those women. And those women who took anastrozole had this 36% reduction in risk of recurrence, but they would also have a group then that could have received potentially more than five years of an aromatase inhibitor therapy. So those are could be considered perhaps weak signals, but those are at least some ideas or concepts that more than five years of aromatase inhibitors may represent in some circumstances a therapy that has at least some rationale. Can you talk about the two presentations that came out of the ATT&CK trial looking at fracture and bone? In terms of fracture risk, the ATT&CK investigators presented two separate data presentations. Dr. Coleman presented the formal subgroup bone health protocol where approximately 300-some patients received serial bone mineral density testing. Several results were interesting. When they looked at them at one year and up to five years, it looked like tamoxifen maintained bone mineral density. Bone mineral density decreased by about 8% in the women on anastrozole. That is significant because it takes about 15 to 20% bone loss to drop from a normal bone density to the osteoporotic range. So not too surprisingly then, not a single patient in that study went from a normal bone mineral density at initiation to osteoporosis during that five-year period. Currently, the ASCO bone health guidelines suggest annual bone mineral density testing based on information available about three and a half years ago when these issues weren't so clear. But those guidelines will be revised, and I think a reasonable person looking at that data now would say that, especially for women with normal bone mineral density, their need for such frequent testing will be mitigated. You're actually the head of that committee, correct? I've written the bone health section in the previous iteration, yes. So what about the patients who start out osteopenic? In terms of patients starting out osteopenic, it looks like one has an option of following those patients to seeing if their bone loss will continue. And it's interesting, while looking in that study, it looked like most of the people stayed within the range that they began with. The osteoporotic patients stayed kind of in the osteoporotic range. The osteopenic ones stayed in the osteopenic range. Very few went to osteoporosis, and the normal stayed in the normal range. So that data suggests that monitoring is probably an appropriate approach. And then, of course, we'd end up having the need for treating the people with osteoporosis, that is, in T-scores, minus 2, minus 2.5. I'm curious whether you were surprised at these findings. No, I think those findings were pretty much predicted from what we had previously. We just didn't have the complete data. One of the interesting things that had previously been shown but was, again, reinforced was when Dr. Howell showed the fracture data at five and a half years, where in that six month after stopping therapy, the fracture rates were pretty much identical. It's interesting. We certainly would like to see more follow-up for that. But I think that has some biological plausibility. We know from estrogen or estrogen plus progestin, if we stop the hormone therapy, you get accelerated bone loss at two to three times the age-adjusted loss rate. So is it reasonable to think that you'll get accelerated bone recovery after this period of estrogen deprivation? You know, kind of similar to the way Kent Osborne talks about 
the tumor modulating itself in a low estrogen environment, in effect, teleologically looking for estrogen. And so we don't know if that's the case or not, but all those bone substudies with all the aromatase inhibitors will certainly help give us that answer. Again, we had seen this before, the fact that the fracture rate came together very, very quickly with tamoxifen versus uh, nasterzol in attack. Did that surprise you? That did, actually. I mean, there is a theoretical concern raised by several bone health experts that any period of bone loss, which involves change in architecture, won't be completely recovered. And remember, just a few years ago, we had these projections of 20-year hip fracture risk associated even with temporary bone loss. And that really suggests that it gives us a signal that won't be the case. And it'll be interesting to follow these women as they go out a longer period of time. Another data set related to AIs I wanted to ask you about was Amon Buzdar's paper on arthralgias. Yes, arthralgias seem to be the major, a major concern of clinicians and patients in terms of continued adherence. And Dr. Buzdar looked at in detail the arthralgia issue related to the attack trial. He found that there was this higher rate of arthralgias on the aromatase inhibitors by about 5%. Interestingly, what was described as a severe arthralgias was almost identical, 10.2 and 10.1% for anastrozole and tamoxifen, respectively. And was and this from attack data? This is from attack data. So they broke it down into the severe. And the number of women stopping because of arthritis, so that was attributed cause for stopping, was 2% on anastrozole and 1% on tamoxifen. Many clinicians feel that the problem is bigger than that. And I share that concern. It is a substantial problem. The other findings were that 90% of the women were treated with a non-steroidal with or without other pain medications, so without great success. Interestingly, about a third of the women, the symptoms resolved over an average of about a six-month period of time. And I think one of the things that happens is a number of us would be switching from one AI to another And it seems that it goes in any direction, that it may well be just this persistence of keeping people on for six months, finding that third of women who the symptoms will go away is probably what's happening. If you switch to tamoxifen, of course, you won't continue. Or if one tells a woman, keep up with your same agent, many more women might be more likely to stop the agent. Now, is there sort of a further characterization of the types of arthralgias? I think the clinical impression of many of us is that one of the reasons this is a bigger problem is it's more commonly in distal extremities and results in functional impairment. One of the issues was it was very common to be exacerbation of existing arthritic condition, but if it's found in the distant distal extremities, women would not be able to do some of the things they're used to before. So they used to garden, can't garden now. Do sports activities, can't do that anymore. Even though the arthritis might be kind of the same, it just moves for whatever reason, maybe into some of the smaller joints. It's interesting. It's different ways to collect data. And for clinicians, sometimes it's kind of tough looking at trial data and trying to figure out what it really means clinically. Another data set that could be brought to bear to this is some of the data that I reported this year from part of our calcium vitamin D trial. And that's in the Women's Health Initiative. In the Women's Health Initiative, yes. And interestingly, in the women who were randomized to either estrogen or estrogen plus progestin, because they all had to be on that as part of the study, that was about half the women, there was a significant reduction in both arthritis scores 
and frequency of women with arthritis in the women who received any estrogen. And so that suggests to me that there's a question about what's the mechanism, and it may well be that the aromatase inhibitors are direct estrogen reduction effect. Interestingly, in that study where we had quantitative perspective assessment of joint pain and joint swelling, so we asked joint pain on a validated four-item questionnaire, none, mild, moderate, severe, so with numerical endpoints, we ended up having 73% of the women reported some joint pain on entry. So it really is a high threshold, and that was an otherwise healthy 62-year-old average age population, very similar to a cancer age population. So the underlying risk is very high. One of the proposed mechanisms is that estrogen is involved in collagen turnover and that there's collagen turnover markers that are suppressed by estrogen. If that's the case, it might be interesting because we might be able to then very quickly evaluate potential effective therapies by seeing what things are able to modulate collagen turnover. Now, you saw this both with estrogen and estrogen progestin? Yes. Yeah. Now, that paper that you presented, the plenary paper at ASCO, looked at calcium plus vitamin D in terms of breast cancer and arthralgia effects. Can you kind of go through the entire data set that you presented? Sure. So this was a plenary session presentation, which always is a great honor. And what we did in the Women's Health Initiative was that this was a study involving 36,282 otherwise healthy postmenopausal women without a prior breast cancer diagnosis. They all had to be entered on either the WHI hormone trial or the WHI dietary modification trial within the past. They were all approached one to two years later and then randomized. The intervention was calcium as 1,000 milligrams per day of elemental calcium as calcium carbonate, or vitamin D3 from GlaxoSmithKline, 400 international units per day. Interestingly, because of the characteristics of the United States population and current recommendations, we allowed women to take supplements at entry and during the course of the trial. So it turned out that the supplement use was actually pretty high. So our average calcium intake was a little over 1,000 milligrams elemental calcium and approaching 400 international units of vitamin D, and that's about twice the average because in the United States, about a third of the women are taking supplements. During the course of the study, even though they're coming forward for a randomized trial in an altruistic setting, actually both groups covered their bets, and the average was 400 international units of vitamin D that they added themselves. And then they were randomized to 400 international units more of D3 or not. And the overall result was certainly not impressive. Hazard ratio 0.96 for invasive cancer, for non-invasive cancer is 0.94. Interestingly, when we did our sensitivity analysis, which we like to do in the Women's Health Initiative, which is censoring individuals, removing them from the analysis six months after they become non-adherent, hazard ratio then is 0.91, 9% fewer cancers with a p-value 0.09. We did a series of subgroup analyses, but the one that's the most interesting, and I should say as background, that the observational study data for vitamin D especially is very strong. You know, there's data for both calcium and vitamin D, but for- In terms of breast cancer incidence? In terms of breast cancer incidence. So 12 of 16 observational studies are positive in terms of showing higher vitamin D intake exposure related to lower breast cancer risk. So this was one of the strongest observational study backgrounds. And one of the subgroup that was of most interest is when we looked at the women who weren't taking supplements at baseline, which were over half, just about half the women, 19,115, which in many circumstances would be considered to be a big trial. 
In that group, there were 18% fewer breast cancers seen, which was statistically significant. And the interaction p-value compared to the women who were taking supplements at baseline was 0.008, suggesting a different effect in those two groups. And then when we looked in that subgroup of women who had no supplement at baseline, what kinds of cancers were not represented, we saw that the hazard ratio for ER-negative, PR-negative cancers was 0.59, so 41% fewer ER-negative, PR-negative cancers in the CAD group. So this is interesting. So we have this kind of dichotomy between a negative overall study with this interesting signal in that if the way you had to do the study over would be in women with no supplements, that you really ended up having this potential close to 20% reduction in breast cancer risk for an intervention that costs 2 to $5 a month that probably has almost no side effects when used in that dose and schedule. It's intriguing to me that supplements are much less used in Europe. So a third of the women in the United States are using supplements it was my understanding that there's only a couple percent of women on the attack trial, for instance, that were taking kind of supplements. Just a couple percent versus a third. If one went into that population, one could quite easily do kind of a study looking at that question. And vitamin D, which is called a nutrient, but it's really found pretty much in fatty fish. So cod and maybe some salmon, that's kind of a weak nutrient, you know, and you get it through sunlight exposure and supplemented D3 or D2 in dairy products. Europe doesn't supplement their dairy products, so they have very, very low levels, and that would be an interesting place to do a full study. Can you track back a little bit more into the potential mechanisms of how vitamin D or calcium would impact breast cancer incidence, and particularly how it would relate to estrogen receptor negative tumors? Yeah, the estrogen receptor negative is a little bit of a puzzle. The vitamin D can be considered like a pro-hormone, which is just one step away between being an active hormone that interacts with many of the downstream events on estrogen receptor positive pathways and on IGF-1 pathways. So it really modulates a lot of those downstream kind of pathways. Since we just saw that receptor negative result, most of our spaceship's landing diagrams are involved. It was more likely to be receptor-positive disease, so I haven't... Uh, but it interacts with enough pathways to suggest that people should be going back to the lab and looking at some of these interactions. You know, it reminded me a little bit of what you reported the year before in 2005, the WIND study, dietary fat reduction, where you saw more of an effect in ER-negative patients. To me, it's a very interesting signal because we really end up having that signal a couple of times and I think maybe I should mention a word about the WHI dietary modification trial, yeah, sure. which was published earlier this year in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And I was one of the authors of that study, with Ross Prentice being the lead author. And extensively that. commented on. It's <laughs> one, one of the most discussed trials in the media in the last year or so. <laughs> yes. The first question at the news conference announcing the result was, how much did the study cost. And of course, that was a kind of a setup question because it was a high number and it was over $400 million. So it's a, but the study design was 48,000 otherwise healthy postmenopausal women in blocked ages, a portion between 50 and 59, 60 and 69, 70 and 79, randomized to a dietary modification protocol or not. This is a group intervention targeting largely dietary fat intake, very similar to WINS, also had a modest target of fruits and vegetables and whole grains. And the diet was done by group intervention. At baseline, 
the fat intake was higher than in wins. The reduction wasn't to the same degree. It went down originally to around 25%, drifted up to 28% calories from fat. Fruits and vegetables went from three and a half to about five servings. The study got to its termination, which was timed on the basis of duration rather than number of events based on the time that the study was planned. And what we reported was, again, a negative overall result with a hazard ratio of 0.91 with a p-value that we've seen a couple times, which is 0.07. So no effect. But there are some interesting subgroups, as always. One of the points that we made in the paper, we didn't call it negative. We said we need a longer duration because of the trends that were emerging and the fact that based on our original adherence estimates and the number of events that we had seen, we thought that the reduction we saw was exactly what we predicted. The interesting parts that were the signals that maybe this is worthwhile were in the women who had the highest quartile of fat intake, over 36% calories from fat at baseline. They had a 22% statistically significant reduction in risk of breast cancer. And then interestingly, Kind of like in the winds, the least effect was in the tumors that were receptor ER positive and PGR positive in both studies. And in the WHI study, for women who had progestin receptor tumors, there were 24% fewer progestin receptor tumors. So it wasn't exactly the same distribution as in winds, but in both studies, the group that had ER positive and PGR positive had the least effect. And maybe suggesting that something like the luminal A's especially if you're under, you know, might not benefit from whatever change is occurring because of the dietary fat reduction. You're saying PR negative or positive? The PR negative had the bigger effect. What about ER negative? Yeah, it wasn't a big effect in ER negative. It wasn't completely consistent with the WINS data. When you line up the two groups, the groups that were least effective in both studies were the groups that were ER positive and PGR positive. So, you know, I guess one of the things I think about since several of these studies suggest the possibility that ER-negative tumors can be prevented or relapse can be prevented in the case of the WIND study is the possibility maybe there are some controls in ER-negative tumors that we maybe are going to be able to take advantage of in the future. I think that's going to be one of the biggest benefits as these studies get wider attention by the breast cancer research community will be shouldn't we be looking at pathways that are different than what we were looking at before? And certainly the question is, is insulin the signal? Are the insulin regulatory pathways things that we should be looking at in more detail to getting clues for this receptor-negative group of patients? Another bone-related paper was Abstract 512. Can you talk about that? Sure. Alan Lipton presented this result continuing the workup of AMG162 or denosumab which is a rank ligand inhibitor. This is human monoclonal antibody that picks off the rank ligand, which is a signal that the osteoblast, when it's laying down bone, sends out a small molecule to tell the osteoclast to grow and attack bone. And so this is a kind of reversible, not changing the nature of the bone type of intervention that's subcutaneous given every four months. And what the study was, was a phase two randomized trial where they looked at Five doses of denosumab compared to IV bisphosphonate, largely zoledronic acid, for both bone turnover markers 
and from the clinical endpoint was skeletal-related events, the same thing that got zoledronic acid approved and widely used in our setting. And interestingly, in all five of their studies, again, a phase two, which you can't really look at efficacy totally, but there was a strong trend for having fewer skeletal-related events on all the denosumab doses and schedules examined. This agent has completed accrual to a study looking at its addition for aromatase inhibitors for bone health maintenance. It's in phase three trial for osteoporosis prevention. So this is a very actively investigated drug. Oh, and substantially reduced, importantly, this trial, many of the side effects associated with IV bisphosphonate therapy in terms of myalgias, post-infusion bone pain. So really with a more favorable side effect profile and a suggestion leading up to an ongoing phase three trial for skeletal-related events compared to the standard of zoledronic acid. What about osteonecrosis? Yeah, the experience is too small to talk about osteonecrosis, but because of its mechanism, there would be reason to think that there wouldn't be a likelihood of it since it's not changing the nature of the bone, but rather is interfering with this small molecule signaling. Another paper I wanted to ask you about, particularly because of the WIND study and your involvement with the WHI, is the Abstract 590, the impact of exercise on body composition, fat distribution, and weight of breast cancer survivors. Yeah, so this was a relatively small pilot kind of study looking at exercise, showing that it was feasible to introduce an exercise program and that, as expected, was not associated with weight loss, was associated with improvement in fitness and other biochemical parameters. Based on the nurse's health report, that exercise in a cohort was associated with a substantial reduction in recurrences, which was reported this past year. I think that's the next target for addition to a lifestyle intervention. And I think the next lifestyle intervention that goes forward for breast cancer risk reduction would almost certainly involve exercise intervention. The amount of exercise required in that nurse's health study cohort report was really quite modest. It was equivalent of like three hours of brisk walking a week associated with a 20 to 30 percent reduction in risk of recurrence. There was also a paper at the 2005 ASCO meeting in colon cancer showing, I think, like a 50% reduction in recurrence with exercise. Interestingly, there's a well study that's a dietary intervention for women with resected breast cancer, which is a telephone-based intervention, which is really kind of interesting because then you get away from some of the objections of clinicians that they can't set up to do that, don't have time to do that. This would be something that would be centrally implemented. I think that's what's going to be the next wave is trying to see if you can have a centrally mediated intervention so that you identify the participant and then someone else will do the intervention who can do it in a very cost-efficient manner. There's some signals that that type of intervention works for smoking. It looks like it's working in well. They've published adherence data that they're able to get lifestyle change in terms of you know dietary change. So it would be interesting to see if you can do the same thing for exercise as well. You know, I think that was one of the points that was made when you presented the WINS data. Well, yeah, that looks great, but how are we going to get people to actually follow this kind of dietary intervention? And yet you would think, and actually the data you mentioned before in terms of diet suggested that a woman who's already had breast cancer is trying to avoid recurrence might be much more compliant with a lifestyle intervention than somebody, for example, in the WHI trying to prevent getting a disease for the first time. Yeah, that's right. And when we looked at the WINS trial again, that was eight one-on-one visits with the registered dietitian implementing a previously developed low-fat eating plan. The dietitians received training and motivation interviewing technique. So they're specially trained. 
it would seem like the intervention would cost about $1,000 to do, paying retail for it. So I think that who would pay for it? Well, right now, it's almost certainly not reimbursable in most medical settings. But to discuss with a woman that this is an option, that people could make reasonable decisions. When we think now about chemotherapy and copays, and people are making similar decisions on a daily basis, the oncologist doesn't have to have time to do this. And if they say you should eat less fat, that won't do anything or refer one time to a dietitian. I think they need to establish a program with some dietitian that becomes familiar with this kind of intervention. Tell a patient that this would be available if you're interested. This would be an option. It's not necessarily proven yet. It'll cost about $1,000. Currently, insurance doesn't pay for it. And let women decide what to do. It's interesting. We have these long discussions about whether we have to discuss TC with the patient or chemotherapy regimens we have to and the cost and the co-pays. But I think many oncologists are unwilling to, you know, take on this burden of presenting something that would be, you know, an additional $1,000 cost to the women. What would be the presumed mechanism of how exercise would be related to breast cancer recurrence? Yeah, exercise, well, there's a number of issues. One of the things is it clearly shows to improve insulin resistance for a variety of mechanisms. It facilitates weight maintenance and weight loss for all those associated mechanisms. So those would be the two kind of top concepts. As these data come forward, the data that we're waiting for, we're hearing over and over again in these other circumstances, is try to get some tumors and be able to see if there's specific characteristics of the tumors that make them more likely to respond to these interventions so you can really get a handle on mechanisms. We've been hearing that for the trastuvizumab data and the bevacizumab data, and I think it would be the same thing should apply to these kinds of interventions as well. There were a couple of papers presented on adherence to hormonal therapy, something I don't think that's been on people's radar very much. One, abstract 648, the other 6141. Can you talk about those studies? Yes, that's an area of increasing interest, this business of adherence to oral hormonal therapy for breast cancer. And it has received really limited attention. I recently completed and submitted a comprehensive review article on this subject and really could find only about four articles before this last report of tamoxifen in clinical practice settings related to adherence, and one of which is Partridge's study out of the Boston area looking at disappearance, and they had about 50%, only 50% of women were taking tamoxifen in the fourth year after diagnosis, filling their prescriptions, let alone not taking it. We had almost identical results reported this year at ASCO in a similar kind of population. Six healthcare groups were examined in terms of looking at the prescription refills, and they also had about a 50% adherence to filling prescriptions at the fifth year. We haven't had any reports of aromatase inhibitor adherence. Many clinicians say that's not their patients. Their patients take the medications. But I think it's probably no different than many other circumstances. Interestingly, I think because chemotherapy is perceived as being a burden and difficult, and some practices provide diplomas, graduation after chemotherapy, I think the concept is you're done with the chemotherapy, you're done with the heavy lifting. And when we get a busy oncologist with a fourth-year, a third-year visit where we reassure the woman that she's doing fine, she has a 12-minute slot, and give her a six-month prescription for aromatase inhibitors, and she's having some joint symptoms, I think it's pretty easy to understand how someone might perceive that they're done with their cancer. Our experience with offering letrozole after the MA17 result came out was informative in that regard. 
we waited till women came in for their routine visits to talk to them about it. We didn't call them in. So they would come in six months later, and then we said, oh, there was a report previously. And our experience was that if the women were within one year of stopping tamoxifen, they generally considered taking letrozole and took it. If they're more than a year out from stopping their tamoxifen, it's like they had a switch that went off that said, I'm done with cancer. They would say, I enjoy coming to your office, talking to you, but I don't need any more therapy. And, and it was kind of interesting concept. You know, it's really weird because we've done surveys of patients. We've done surveys of oncology nurses and of oncologists. And all three groups say, you know, adherence is extremely high. This is a serious disease. Patients take their medication. And yet, I think also, in, well, I guess it's a little bit different in the prevention setting where we've seen data with the P1 study, but these other studies that you just talked about saying that maybe people aren't really taking their medication. Where do you think the discrepancy is in terms of why people have this belief that this is not a problem and yet we have data that it is? Yeah, I think oncologists, we know that we have a powerful impact on our patients. And I think that's one of the attractions of medical oncology is that you get a great personal relationship. We have somebody with a life-threatening disease, a lot of contact. And I think it's hard for us to believe that the patients aren't doing what we say because we think we have this great relationship with them. And I think one of the things that's amazing to me that's not been studied is how a patient's perceived risk of recurrence changes over time. In this review article that I did, I was looking for that. I couldn't find any study that looked at what's a woman's perceived risk like in the fifth year versus the first year versus the seventh year. Hmm. One study I did find was that depression was high in the first year and then went down in the fifth year, which actually would correlate exactly with the adherence. Now, that's not exactly the same thing, but that's something that has to be done, is especially now that we're asking women to say, oh, we've changed the rules now. You really, it isn't five years. We're talking about 10 or 15 years of, with the MA17 extension study, now you're talking of up to 15 years of, you know, intervention. And Someone has to find out if the women think that they're at risk during this interval because we haven't been really communicating that to a great degree. Well, speaking of that, I'm curious about your thoughts about a kind of really kind of a cool study that was reported by Davidson Abstract 6141 where they looked at actually what was going on in the oncologist's practice in this regard. Yeah, it is interesting. There's a couple of things. This study and then the study previously reported by Vogel and the group where they have these interviewing, it's very interesting methodology where they get an agreement, which is in a very difficult clinical situation, an agreement from the physician and the patient who are having initial diagnosis regarding breast cancer therapy to have it be recorded, and then they interview the people afterwards. So it's really kind of a reality something, you know. And then you have quantitative analysis defined techniques to look at the question. And one of the things that comes out from this is that the question of the importance of taking study medications is never discussed. So it's really kind of an interesting situation where I think we probably have to go back to addressing how this information should be presented to women. Can you talk about specifically what was found in this observational study? So in the report by Davidson, they used the techniques involved in recording the interview of the physician and then interviewing the patient and the physician afterwards. And one of the interesting findings, they found that in adjuvant hormonal therapy discussions, there was not the sense of urgency or focus that there was in the chemotherapy discussions and that one of the emphasis that came up in terms of phrases that seemed to be found and recurred was that women were encouraged or the discussion was centering on them getting on with their lives in terms of actually the chemotherapy being the main focus. Now that's behind them. 
and they can move forward. I think the oncologist and the patient both like that as an approach, but that certainly would put you at risk of filling a prescription that might cost hundreds of dollars five or six months in the future. I guess what I thought was interesting about that is, I guess there's been a lot of attention to the issue of adherence in the primary care setting, hypertension, other kinds of medication, and sort of trying to train physicians in terms of how to remind patients how to bring this up. And oncologists, I guess, early aren't tuned in to that type of intervention. I guess what they saw here was that there wasn't a lot of discussion asking patients, are you taking your medicines, et cetera. I agree with that, and I think the other issue is one of the initiatives we're working on is trying to get nursing more involved in this question, and that, in a certain sense, might be a more fruitful situation in that the patients get a tremendous relationship with the infusion personnel, nurses depend on them very much as a first line for discussion. And I think in that setting, those nursing personnel could give a strong signal about the importance of maintaining adherence, saying with some kind of program saying that the job is not completed, you're just starting your therapy. And that's another potential focus that could just as well be effective to emphasize as the chemotherapy is being completed that actually your job is just beginning. What do you say to a patient if you do say, you know, are you taking your aromatase inhibitor or whatever? And they say, well, you know, it's kind of expensive. Interestingly, physicians will bring that up as an issue to me, and I can see their reluctance to engage in a discussion because they feel it'll take two directions, one of which is doctors make too much money, the drugs are overpriced, and it's easier to just say, okay, we'll give you a less expensive alternate. What I do, though, is I do something that just takes a few seconds. I ask them first, do you have the money? And it's usually a couple hundred dollars of disposable income per month. If they say no, then they may well qualify for some of these free drug programs or drug assistance programs. If they say they have the money, then I say, what do you intend to spend the money on instead of this medication? And it's a kind of a forced response, and they have to, you know, they'll tell me I want to go out to dinner twice a month. Then I won't say anything about it, but, you know, I just force them to make that decision. The third thing I tell them is that if you think that you're saving money, because another answer would be saving money for your children, grandchildren, said, if you think you're saving money with this approach, you're actually taking a chance because the cost of recurrence runs in the hundreds of thousands of dollars for most individuals don't escape without a copay or significant substantial impact on their finances. So it isn't as if you're saving $200 a month, like by getting a cheaper phone service. It's just, yeah, you're potentially saving the money, but you could lose it all if you have a recurrence that would have been avoidable. And that takes me, say, you know, do you have the money? What are you going to use it for? And you should know that there's tremendous costs associated with recurrence. You're not actually saving the money. You are taking a chance. That takes me 15 or 20 seconds. But that tells the woman that I think it's important. The ball's in her court to make the decision. But I'm holding my ground. I'm not saying, yeah, you're right. I don't think it's worth it. I'm telling her I think it's worth it. And you make the judgment as the answers you gave me whether you think it's worth it to take this chance. Another paper related to calcium and vitamin D was presented by Lonning. Can you talk about that? Yes, this is a Scandinavian population where they're looking at vitamin D levels in relationship to bone loss. Interestingly, in that northern latitude country, there were, by conventional standards of 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels, which were under 30, would be deficient. They had about 85% of the women were vitamin D deficient. And Though the numbers were small because he had a total of about 73 women in this study, there seemed to be a trend that the women who had the lowest vitamin D levels 
had a greater degree of bone loss. Now, that's an ongoing hypothesis question about the relationship between vitamin D, bone loss, kind of calcium intake that isn't completely resolved. There's a very complicated relationships because vitamin D certainly facilitates calcium intake. If you have high calcium intake, you need less vitamin D. But that's an interesting signal that vitamin D levels may represent a target that could facilitate reduced risk of bone loss. The 147 postmenopausal women with early breast cancer were randomized to receive either exemestane for two years or placebo. They also measured 25-hydroxyvitamin D levels, found that about 85% of the women were vitamin D deficient, the suggestion was that the women with the greatest vitamin D deficiency had a greater likelihood of having bone loss with or without the aromatase inhibitor, and the authors suggested that vitamin D deficiency could be a major factor contributing to the kind of bone loss seen in this setting. The numbers were small, though the data and conclusions are reasonable with respect to our current understanding of relationships of vitamin D and bone health. What do we know about the typical vitamin D levels in patients in the United States? If we're looking at 25-hydroxyvitamin D levels in women in the United States, we have some information from the Women's Health Initiative in our trial of calcium vitamin D where we had a sample of about 1,700 women otherwise healthy in that trial, and close to 60% of the women were deficient for vitamin D in that setting. Interestingly, arthritis symptoms were unrelated to vitamin D levels at baseline. So I think some of these relationships are not straightforward. We know that severe vitamin D deficiency, which is osteomalacia, is associated largely with muscle aches, but also muscle aches, joint problems, very commonly seen in renal dialysis patients where high-dose parenteral vitamin D therapy is commonly used. There were also a couple of papers presented from the MA-17 trial. Anything new that sort of came out at ASCO with regard to that? The MA-17 trial was updated this year at ASCO, where previously it had been reported at 30 months median follow-up. The study designed there, of course, was women who had received tamoxifen for five years, then were randomized to letrozole or a placebo, stopped after 30 months because of 42% reduction in risk of recurrence. Interestingly, the data was presented two ways. One was an intent-to-treat analysis, even though 73% of the women had crossed over to letrozole. And now, after additional two years of follow-up, there still was a substantial reduction in risk of recurrence for women who initially had letrozole. The overall survival, however, was almost identical, with a hazard ratio of 0.99, and also of interest was that the contralateral cancer was still substantially different, even though you came back with the letrozole. Then in a related presentation, Dr. Robert presented the data on the women who were unblinded. And so this is just the opposite side of the street. Before it was intent to treat analysis. Now we're just looking at the women who were unblinded and offered in the placebo group to take letrozole or not. Interestingly, 73% of the women agreed to take letrozole after a period of three to five years of no letrozole following tamoxifen. So it's a long gap. Data was presented suggesting that the women who took letrozole were at higher breast cancer recurrence risk by conventional criteria. But nonetheless, there was now about a 70% fewer recurrences in the women who selected to take letrozole and about 50% statistically significant fewer deaths in the women who elected to take letrozole. That 
was a very controversial presentation since the poster discussant called the analysis inappropriate. And the question by the presenters was, well, should this be considered a descriptive analysis? And the question is, what is an appropriate statistical analysis, or should it just be presented the data for interest? The issue was raised because there was Cox subgroup analyses performed and data shown with p-values in subgroups. Who was the discussant? Dr. Carlson. Really? That's interesting. So that kind of analysis raises the question of what you should do with unblinding information. Now, certainly you can attempt to control for prognostic factors, but one could easily imagine that a woman's decision to go on to a therapy when they were told it was effective would really have a lot of potential selection factors that you may not be able to control for. Although, I mean, I can see the point about not doing statistical analyses, but I think there's no reason not to show what happened. I think that's where the discussion ended up at that result, was that it probably was not a good idea to not look at the data ever again, because you may certainly inform you know, clinical decision-making, future protocol designs, but to attempt to provide detailed statistical analyses, because the assumptions have to be quite great when you're looking at what's going on in that population.